it is just about really just being human with each other, just recognizing like, hey, like there's difficult things going on. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. We're very excited about our guest today. We have Vivian Castillo. She is the senior design researcher and innovation consultant at Salesforce. She has a super interesting background in trauma counseling. Uh, She talks about topics that not a lot of people are talking about, shame, empathy, vulnerability, compassion, how they relate to user research, and also self-care. And that's what we're going to talk about a lot today, how to take care of the person who's, you know, meant to draw insights from lots of other human beings and, and what that sort of looks like. So thank you for joining us. We're so happy you're here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Super excited. We've got JH here too. Yeah. It feels like a timely conversation since it's the turn of the new year. Um, you know, a good time to reflect and think about how to take care of yourself. So uh, I'm super excited for it. Awesome. So let's jump right in. Uh, Vivian, tell us a little bit about how did you come to this topic of self-care and user research and and deciding that it was an important thing to get the message out there about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my background before I, you know, switched into the world of UX and tech is in counseling and psychology. And I, um, I was in a season of doing deeper trauma studying when I had a mentor really encouraged me to find a creative hobby with a beginning and an end because in counseling, you know, the work never stops. Like the door is constantly revolving. And so uh, initially I was teaching myself how to code because I was living on the East Coast at the time. My dad's a programmer in Chicago. So I thought it'd be cool for us to have these like long distance, like nerd dates talking about code. And um, as I was just doing more research on programs that teach code, I noticed that some of these programs also taught something called UX design and I never heard of that. And so just started exploring and researching what that was about. And within that, learned about UX research. And I remember just thinking like, wow, like here's something where I can bridge my love for people with technology and business. And um just started to, again, learn more, understand more what the industry was about, and ultimately ended up making a, a career switch into this field. And, you know, from my background and just like the way that my training and experience talks about empathy and being human-centered, it's one of the main reasons why I was really drawn to the UX field. And so I remember um, going to this conference and I had won the scholarship to go to the O'Reilly Design Conference. And I remember just being super excited to hear VP, executive level folks talk about design, um, being human-centered, diversity and inclusion. And I remember just at the end of that conference, just kind of sitting in my chair and being like, wow, like we have very different understanding (laughs) of what does it mean to be human centered. And in many ways I was just kind of like, wow, this is all BS of like Mm -hmm. how we talk about these things. And, um, as I've continued in my career, I've, I've noticed and have just talked to UX professionals who are sharing, um, how they're exhausted. They're sharing about, 
um, you know, how they're having these like flashbacks of conversations, difficult conversations that have occurred. And in many ways, they're, they're starting to like share these symptoms that for me, I'm like, wow, like this is compassion fatigue or talking to people who work with marginalized groups a lot. And I'm just hearing like, wow, like they're experiencing vicarious trauma and just realizing that, you know, we're, we talk a lot about caring for other people, advocating for other people, but our industry is missing the other side of the coin, which is about caring for ourselves and knowing how to advocate for ourselves and our needs as well. Do you see this kind of compassion fatigue happen? Is it sort of proportional to the amount of time spent talking to and interviewing other humans, right? Or for folks maybe in more blended roles of doing some research, doing some other things, you know, where do you see this sort of happen most acutely? Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like it, it kind of depends. I think some of it depends on, um, who people are talking to and what they're talking to them about. Mm-hmm. I think the other way that I see people who struggle with compassion fatigue the most is those who have to deal with stakeholders who, you know, quote unquote, like don't get it. I right. don't understand what does it mean to advocate for people, or to prioritize people. And so just that emotional and mental labor that UX professionals put into trying to convince and advocate for and um, educate people, I notice also plays a part in um, people who often feel compassion fatigue and experience it the most. Mm, yeah. It- it feels like a hard thing to recognize in yourself, right? Because I imagine yeah. you spend a little compassion here, you spend a little compassion here, and it kind of just like builds up over time where you get depleted. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas then like someone like you as, a, as an outside party sees this person and you're like, whoa, you really need to take a break <laughs> and, get, and get you know centered here. Um, are there ways that people can kind of self-identify that maybe they're running out um, or a little depleted? Or is it something that you really need somebody else to kind of flag for you and, and help you through it? Um, I think there's ways for us to suss it out for ourselves. Um, and I think a part of it is like, again, some of these uh, initial symptoms. So um, I think about things like uh, like having um, like feeling anxious or having difficulty sleeping or, um, you know, feelings of like self-contempt, um, weight loss, headaches. Um, you know, significant decrease in job satisfaction, things like that. I think what what makes it hard for people to um, assess themselves in these things is the fact that they don't even know that it's something that they should assess themselves on a somewhat regular basis. So, you know, for human service professionals, this is something that's talked about basically day one of your training. Like you're taught to check in with yourself. How are you feeling? How is your job impacting your personal and professional life? And so you're taught to check in with yourself. You're taught to um, recognize some of these symptoms, some of these emotions that are coming up within your work. And you're encouraged to take time and step away, take care of yourself if you need it. Whereas in our industry, like that's something that is not necessarily taught, not only within our, within school and the curriculum that we teach people in this field, but even in regards of content that leaders and other professionals are putting out into the world. Um, And so part of it is just having an early awareness that, hey, this is actually something that you need to have on your radar and something that should go hand in hand with how you see and approach your job and your work. Mm. 
so yeah, so it's really not like it's not that the self diagnosis self diagnosis is hard. It's that nobody even thinks to do it is is kind of the bigger problem in your experience. Yeah, I don't think people recognize that this is something that should be on the radar. Um, yeah. And so, like, you don't know what you don't know. Totally. Um, and so, I feel like since I've been giving since I've been giving this talk around the role of self care and how it's an ethical imperative for us, I've been having a lot of people reach out to me and they're sharing their stories around like, wow, I didn't realize that those flashbacks that we're having was actually trauma. You know, mm-hmm. I worked on this project with refugees. I was super excited because I'm helping people and using my skills for a good purpose and didn't realize that was happening to me. And that's why I actually ended up leaving the field two years ago. Then mm-hmm. they're like, if I had known that this had a name, that this is something that I could get help for, that I could work through, that I could develop resilience around, like maybe I could have still been a UX professional. Um, and that, that saddens me. Yeah, absolutely. So if we say we can right get to a place where, and not just in user research, right, the burnout's happening in, in all sorts of fields for different reasons, where there's sort of a self-inventory of where am I on this, or, you know, managers and HR professionals sort of encouraging those conversations, you know, among teams. Um, you know, you talked about one of the sources of this compassion fatigue can be managing stakeholders, right? And managing other folks that you're working with who maybe don't have a great sense of what human-centered really means. Mm -hmm. Have you seen folks have success with, uh, I'm having a little compassion fatigue here, Uh, (laughs) going to need to do something about it, and finding the right people and tools to then take action? Is there support there or how do people, you know, get support? Mm, That's a good question. Um, I feel like, I guess, um, I don't know. I think about how do people get support there? I think a part of it is knowing um, when good is good enough. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes, especially for us, you know, we often feel like we have to carry this mantle of being the advocate and the champion. And I think sometimes we have to be able to step back and recognize like there's only so much we might be able to communicate to a certain stakeholder, whether it's on that particular project or even within the scope of our timing at that company. And I think that's a hard, that's a hard thing to accept Hmm. um, because then it, in some ways it almost feels like you're giving up. It feels like, oh, maybe I'm not doing my job correctly. But I think what that does is it gives you permission for, to do a couple things. It gives you permission to um, emotionally not be so invested Um, I think it gives you permission to try new ways of engaging that person or new angles of approaching that person that maybe don't seem as taxing as other proposed ways that we often talk about within the community. And I think it also just gives you um, the language to understand like what's happening within you and how to communicate that to your manager. If you are having difficulty or you need their support or advice, um, with dealing with a particular stakeholder. And so, and I think that is something that ends up benefiting you as a professional and, and how you advance in your career. And so, um, I don't know, those are just kind of, I guess the first things that come to mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. What, what came to mind for me is like a kind of a little bit of a weird association maybe, but, um, there's kind of a saying sometimes within sports of like 
the best ability is availability. Like if you're not mm -hmm. actually available to be on the field, whether you're strong or fast or a good passer or whatever, like you can't help the team. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. with some of those types of things you might need to rehab, like you hurt your ankle and you're like obviously walking with a limp. It's very easy for like the team or the coach or whoever to be like, hey, why don't you take a week, really rehab that thing so you can come back and help us. And with like mental health or things like that, it feels a little bit more nebulous where it's like harder to see or it's harder to communicate sometimes. And so if you are somebody who's, you know, uh, experiencing some vicarious trauma or having kind of a, some compassion fatigue, like having that toolkit of vocabulary to explain it to people so that people can kind of like understand it and be like, yeah, you should take a week and get yourself kind of back into full strength so that you can come back and help us the way that, you know, you normally contribute. It's, it, I don't, I don't know how to bridge that gap, but it feels like it's just like, it's harder to communicate versus like physical things, which you can kind of just see and people kind of intuitively understand if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we, when we think about, when we talk about UX professionals and their role within a company and within a team, it's, it's again, often this heavy focus on the team that you're on and the company that you're in. And really in order to be able to address and assess where you're at, we, in many ways, we have to be a little bit more selfish. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, you know, I often think about for, you know, for folks who've ever flown before, you'll hear the flight attendant share that, you know, in the event that we need to use oxygen masks, you know, place it on yourself first before helping small children or others who may need your assistance. And, you know, when you hear that, I think this often goes against most parents' instincts, mm -hmm. you know, like take care of myself before my child. But, you know, the logic behind that is like, if your child loses consciousness, you know, they're still breathing. However, if you lose consciousness, you won't be able to help your child, yourself or others. And so I think this is an important analogy to remember for people who take care of everyone and everything else except themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and unless you prioritize your self-awareness, unless you prioritize your self-care and do the necessary work to address any issues that may be holistically weighing you down and are possibly causing professional impairments or causing um, personal um, strains, then you'll fizzle out and not really be able to help anyone. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about, um, you know, the sort of value of, you know, taking inventory and saying, Hey, I don't have to, you know, sell every stakeholder on the value of user research all the time. <laughs> right. Or things like that. Mm -hmm. What are some other tools people can use to, you know, make sure that they are putting on that oxygen mask either proactively or maybe a little bit too late, but not too, too late. Right. Oh <laughs> shit. There's a problem. Right? <laughs> what do I do now? Yeah. What are some other tools people can do to proactively and hopefully less reactively right, right. assess where they're at? Yeah. And, and to take action, right? To, and to take action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I always talk to people about how important it is to have that, like those one or two people, either in your professional space or your personal space that, you know, you can always be, 100% vulnerable and honest with, with what's going on in your work and what's going on in your personal life. Um, I personally have those people. Um, and for me, I know that they're, and I've talked to them about like, hey, if you, if there's a blind spot that's happening, even as I'm talking about work, as you're hearing how often am I talking about work in our conversations, like 
please like let me know. Please help me see things and like hold me accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think one tool is just um, being able to kind of like leverage relationships you have in your life in order to be that mirror, in order to be um, that the person that gives you feedback. I think another tool as well, and I do this before I go into, if I'm doing an interview um, or if I'm about to do a workshop, I take um, an inventory before and after. So I'll write on a piece of paper and I'll ask myself things like, you know, um, how am I feeling today? What are the things that I'm bringing into this session? You know, what are things that maybe have happened this morning? What are arguments or maybe difficulties that have happened that I might be bringing into this? Um, what are the assumptions and potential biases I already have against the stakeholder, against mm-hmm. this end user? And how could that impact the way that I'm understanding and interpreting this information? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll write that down on a piece of paper. And part of the reason why I write it down is because one, it draws my awareness to it. And so I'm able to um, mitigate myself a little bit more when I'm in that interview, when I'm in that workshop. Um, but two, it's taking it off of my mind. It's uh, releasing it a little bit from um, you know any tension that it might be causing me. And then after those workshops and those interviews, I again do a debrief. Um, was there anything that happened that I felt like emotionally stirred me up in any way, whether positively or negatively? Um, how do I think that impacted the way I was relating and like talking to that stakeholder and to that person? Um, you know, what potential assumptions or biases did I feel like were surfacing up when they said, um, A, B, or C? Um, you know, how am I feeling now as before to, you know, before I entered into that interview, into that workshop? Um, and then what I often do is I'll kind of look at both of those. I'll, I'll see if, you know, what, what was similar, what changed, and just kind of make mental notes around what are the things I need to keep in mind as I'm combing through my notes, as I'm thinking about insights that I'm surfacing that could not only potentially be biased, but could also be something that I might be carrying with me after my nine to five ends. Um, and so I think those like self-check-ins and just, being able to write that and document that is like another light and easy way for people to check in with themselves. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research, and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more, so we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I really love the, uh, the mask like analogy or metaphor. I, I, we say that a lot. My wife and I have a, uh, a four-month-old. And so just like one thing that I've started doing is almost like more in like a playful or like tongue-in-cheek way. You know, in the morning, if he's crying as I go get his bottle and I'm taking 30 seconds to get myself a coffee on the way, I'll be like, hey, but I got to put my mask on first and then come back with the coffee. And mm. and there's something about like just saying it a lot and doing it kind of in a light, like non-serious way 
like is a nice kind of a reminder or permission that like it's okay to take you know moments for yourself and to kind of like get re recentered. Um, and then I find that I think about it more often than I did you know prior to kind of using that as a as like a little bit of like a playful trick. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. it, just as a, you know, as a tip that's like kind of helped me in, uh, in recent scenarios. No, that's great. Yeah. And I feel like too, um, I think because I've been writing and speaking about this, I also am the person who receives all of the horror stories mm-hmm. that people have experienced. And I'm not talking about like war stories, but I'm talking about like traumatic things that people have experienced as UX professionals. And it's been interesting to hear about how people either one, just um, uh, shove it down and decide, okay, I don't have to deal with it because I, I need to like get through this interview or I need to check off all these boxes. Or it's been also interesting to hear about how people have tried to create those boundaries for themselves, even within like the interview process. And so I remember someone uh, shared with me a story about how, um, they were interviewing um, a gentleman and he just started um, just being almost like overly uh, sexual with her and um, was just like being overly like flirty and all these things. And she talked about like how in that moment she felt like she just kind of need to tell him to like calm down and like continue pushing on with the interview because she had to she only had a certain amount of interviewers set up or interviewees set up and participants and all these things. And she talked about how eventually she just had to say like, uh, sorry, excuse me, sir, but we just can't continue this interview anymore. Like this is not helpful. Um, and just had to walk away. And she talked about how like she's experienced things like that before, but there was something in that moment where she's like, I just had to give myself permission that like, Hey, like, getting this interview checked off the box is not worth my, my, my safety, not worth my emotional sanity, all these things. Mm. Um, and honestly though, but I, I don't hear a lot of stories from people who do reach out, who do that. Um, you know, even if I've, I've had stories where people are being triggered from something like someone said, and it's triggering them to maybe a difficult childhood memory or it's, you know, triggering um, trauma within them, but they just kind of sit there and endure because this is the job. Like I have to like be in the midst of all of the messiness and beauty of humanity. Like I have to just be here and I'll, you know, sort it out later. Um, And so I just encourage people, like if you need to step away or you need to reschedule interviews on a certain day, because emotionally, mentally, you are, you know, not fully there. You're incredibly distraught. Like take that time and space to do so. I do feel like there's, um, you know, an organizational kind of culture component to this too, right? Where I'm all for, you know, take ownership of your life, right. And give yourself permission to be the person you want to be and have the life you want to have. Um, but I do think there's probably a bigger, reason people aren't giving themselves that permission. And, you know, I don't know that all organizations are making people feel comfortable to make those kinds of judgment calls for themselves to Mm -hmm. put themselves ahead of what seems to be the task at hand, especially in tech, right? Mm -hmm. We're having more of these conversations now, but I, I imagine that's part of it, right? Where people feel like if I do less than 100, you know, that's going to reflect poorly on me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the main um, 
something I hear a lot is, well, Vivian, like this isn't just unique to UX. Like this is anyone who works in corporate, anyone who like works in the real world. Um, And I get that. I do think that in regards of what we do, because of one, how we talk about what we do, the nature of what we do and how often we work closely with people, whether it's with end users or stakeholders, that um, we are just more exposed to all the things that tend to drain us when it comes to working deeply and closely with people. Um, And so I think in many ways, what I'm proposing is, was it, what could it look like for us to create a subculture within the culture of the organizations and companies that we work in? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I work at Salesforce in the office of innovation and something that we do is, um, you know, before we start projects, we actually have a coach that's on staff with us and we do something called an alliance. And, you know, you're with your team and you're talking about, hey, these are, this is how I understand what's expected of me for this project. You know, we talk about, hey, if, if you're going to work well with me, you need to understand that, you know, I like heads down time or I need to leave at four to pick up my kid or whatever it is. Um, you know, we talk about like what are concerns or fears we have about this project. Um, and even it's an opportunity to share about, hey, is there anything like personally that we should be aware of that we could support each other in boundaries that we want to try and keep up, you know, as a team, what do we want to commit to doing to making sure not only that this project is successful, but making sure that we're caring for each other and taking care of ourselves in the midst of this. Um, that's a very unique thing. I don't think every team does this. Actually, I'm pretty confident every team doesn't do this at Salesforce, but something that we do within the office of innovation. And um, what I love about it too, is it creates a culture for us to have uh, check-ins with each other. So we'll have like team check-ins, whether it's daily or once a week. And we talk about like, how are you feeling? You know, how are you doing? You know, people will share about what's going on either personally, they're sharing about, you know, how they're feeling emotionally, whatever it is. And then also just sharing any sentiments or comments around where they're at and how they're feeling about the project. Um, and we just check in with each other and we know how to then support one another. We know then hey, I'm actually having a really difficult week. You know, there's some family issues. It'd be great if someone could help me with A, B, and C. Um, and it, it really just creates a, a really awesome experience and creates a little camaraderie and just unity around um, not only the project that we're on, but more importantly to each other. Yeah, mm. that's great. That's awesome. Are those um, like face-to-face check-ins or you guys do it async, written, or how, how do those actually like take place? Face-to-face. Um, cool. And I would say you know, for the alliance and what we do before a project starts and even we debrief afterwards, um, those are things that we write down um, so that we know that we have that level of accountability and we can always go to and uh, refer refer to. And I imagine it takes some, you know, sort of psychological safety, right, to get to where people feel comfortable sharing you yeah. know, the, the vulnerable stuff. How do you, how do you form that? Did, you know, did it, as you started these alliances, I'm not sure how long you've been doing them, but was it sort of comfortable or, or acceptably awkward out of the gate or how did you make it, you know, work for folks? Yeah. I mean, I think the way that we work too, um, at least within my org is when you're on, when we're on different projects, you might be working with different people. So, um, the alliances look different for every project that is going on within the org. 
But um, I think something that has helped is the fact that we we do have a coach um, who is on staff within our org. And so if there's um, someone who maybe doesn't feel as comfortable or maybe they're having issues, um, you know, oftentimes we'll have one-on-ones with that coach. We'll talk about, okay, how do you mitigate that? Like, how do you still feel like you can express yourself even if you maybe don't feel fully psychologically safe with uh, the group because person A, B, or C is there? Um, and that coach often works with us of like, how do you mitigate that? How do you still create that space for yourself? How do you advocate for yourself? Um, and so obviously I, I recognize that not every org or every team can have a coach and can do that. But I do think something that we can take away from that is, and even for managers is like managers, what would it look like for you to be that person to help your direct reports um, navigate uh, conflict or navigate feelings of, hey, I don't know if I can fully be honest or straightforward with a colleague. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's just another hat that the managers, I think, should wrestle through and figure out how, how to wear it. Yeah. What else? What else should we know? What did we not ask you? I don't know. I mean, I think... I don't know. My mind just goes to there's there's so many factors that play into how we show up at work and the emotional strains and the things that we're going through. Like, I mean, on top of all of like the political things that many of us experience in our companies, there's even just the the stress and the trauma of what's happening in the, our day to days of like political turmoil, like. How do you, like, I always talk to people around, um, I remember when, you know, we were having all the things happening in the news with Michael Brown and, you know, police unnecessarily killing black people. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand that, especially for black professionals, like that stuff is really traumatic. You know, we're seeing on loop on Facebook, on TV, like us being killed, like just video recordings constantly. Um, And that stuff impacts us. And yet we then have to go into work and, you know, armor up and act as if that stuff isn't impacting what we're feeling and thinking in the day. You know, I think about, you know, the shootings that have been happening in the mosque, you know, over the past year and, um, you know, what's been happening to the Jewish community. And so like, I think a part of it is just, I always encourage people to just be aware of your colleagues and the the things that are happening in the world and how that might be impacting them and their families. Um, you know, things have been happening, at least in the States, you know, things that have been happening at the border of, you know, families being ripped apart, kids being put in cages, like that affects communities within our orgs. And, within the UX community as well. And so in many ways, and I think just in the times that we live in, um, I think more than ever, it's so important for us to really understand what does it mean to be um, empathic? What does it mean to be human-centered and compassionate, not just to people that we're meant to serve, but to each other within the community? Mm. That's good advice, yeah. I feel like sometimes two people like will will kind of fall back to like, well, I don't know what to say or whatever. And I think sometimes it's it's not like you always need to say something like perfect or profound. Just you know, some say something and just acknowledge in some way that 
you know, you're aware that maybe somebody's experiencing something difficult in their life, whether it's, you know, personal or external or whatever it may be, just like some acknowledgement of it usually is, is pretty well received, um, versus just kind of ignoring it and, and acting like there's nothing happening, um, is, is usually worse in my experience. Um, so you don't always have to have like the perfect, you know, thing to offer the person, just, just some outreach and some connection there can, can go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in some ways it's, it's even just good practice for what happens when you're with a participant and they just start breaking down, (laughs) um, the middle of your interview. Um, you know, it is just about really just being human with each other, just recognizing like, Hey, like there's difficult things going on. Um, you know, I know sometimes when I'm hearing something in the news and I know it's probably impacting one of my colleagues versus someone else, you know, I'll go to them and be like, Hey, like, I know there's a lot like going on in the world. Like, I just want, you to know, like, if you ever want to talk, like I'm here for you. Um, and I've actually had colleagues do that with me as well, but really it's, it's about just taking initiative um, and just showing even just in like small ways that you care. It doesn't have to be this super big therapeutic moment between you and your colleague. It's just letting them know that you care and you're here for them. Yeah. Yeah. If um, so, I've been trying to keep it in my head as we've gone through this whole conversation of, you know, if I was going to make like myself like a little toolkit for self care when I'm working with end user research, if it felt like there was kind of like a couple categories, I'm not sure if this, if this seems right, uh, based on everything we just covered, but like one is do some sort of self-assessment or some sort of check-in on some cadence, whether it's, you know, you write in a journal or, or and you ask yourself some questions or something, or, or you have a person you can trust who can help you do it. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the facilitation method looks like, but to your point about like, you don't know what you don't know, you, you might have blind spots. So some sort of self check-in feels like a big part of it. Um, the notion that it's okay to sometimes be a little selfish and put your mask on first and, and do things that, um, you know, get you in a better place before you go off and, and help others. And then there was this last piece you kind of were just walking through around, you know, supporting each other within a team of how do you, you know, make that a regular habit and, and find ways to, um, you know, be open and vulnerable with one another and, and support each other. Are those kind of like the main categories or the other things that, um, you'd put in that toolbox? Yeah, no, I think that's a great summary. Um, and I think, you know, there needs to be a balance between like on a more personal individual level, what do you do for yourself? Um, you know, I think that's why even I wrote this mini series for Modus on medium around self-care and in the bottom of the four pieces I publish, I have worksheets and like things for you to do to on a personal level, check in with yourself see how you're doing, seeing what you're bringing into your work. Uh, But I think also to your point, the other half is like, what does this mean for you and your team? And how do you carve out time to make sure that um, your team is doing okay? And how do you care for each other? Um, You know, what's interesting is, um, and for, for counseling, for example, you know, we have a code of ethics. And within that, there's a section about how other professionals, how it's their ethical responsibility to make sure that their colleagues are, you know, holistically, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually doing okay. And what does it look like to to offer support and um, to partner with them in times when their colleagues aren't doing their best or their colleagues are being professionally impaired because of these things. And so, you know, I have a, a vision of, man, like, what would that look like if the UX community also took that call seriously of recognizing that it's an ethical imperative to really care for each other so that 
the ways that we interact with people, the ways that we interact with our stakeholders um, are truly being mitigated of ways that we can cause harm because of other things that we might be going through. On a, on a, on a personal level, uh, you've had a tough day. You're, you're feeling burned out. You go home. What are, <laughs> what are some of the things you do to, to help yourself out? <laughs> yeah. Um, man, I mean, in general, I, I don't schedule anything, um, after work on Mondays and Tuesdays. Like those are, that's Viv time. That's what I call it. Um, and it's time for me just to like decompress and relax. Um, it's time for me just to decompress and for relax. And I think, you know, on the days that I feel burnout that don't fall on a Monday and Tuesday, um, the ways that I do it is honestly, I, I try, I mean, this sounds a little harsh, but I, I try not to hang out with my colleagues because I don't want to talk about work because I know we're going to talk about work. Um, you know, I will go to the gym, I will go on a walk, I will read, um, you know, I'm someone who really likes to create. So I'll write poetry. I'll um, tinker around with um, maybe like a, you know, do-it-yourself type of craft. Um, just something just to get me out of the the typical way that I've been working and thinking throughout the day. But also I, honestly, I'll probably call one of my two best friends and just talk about what's on my mind um, and just allow them to really like speak any words of like truth or encouragement or just rebuke if, I, if necessary into my life. And so, but yeah, it, it kind of looks different depending on what it is that is causing me to feel burned out. I also really liked the, um, you have like an autoresponder on your, your email right now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have an autoresponder that basically, um, gives me permission to not respond. Yeah. Um, but also just, I don't know, like I, I recognize that I'm just in a season where I have a lot happening both professionally and personally. And so part of the way that I'm trying to be good and kind to myself this year is to create space for me to do that and to lean more into, into that type of work. And so, um, I think, um, I think, I don't know, that's just a way that I'm trying to, to create a boundary and to, to honor and, and love myself this year. That's great. And you time box it too. I think most of us write things ebb and flow and change over time. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, what, what you might need, uh, you know, an H1 of 2020 might be different. Yeah. Than you, right. Um, exactly. And, um, you know, there's always flexibility to change uh, an away message. There's always flexibility right. to change what boundaries that you've communicated to others. Um, but, but, yeah. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>